the work that we do as creators can be art presented to an audience. It, it's like bumper bowling, right? If you just stay within those structures, you're not gonna throw a gutter ball, but eventually you're gonna pull those bumpers off. Respond to what you hear, don't judge what you say. Just work through zip, zap, zop. Believe it or not, by the time you finish listening to this podcast, zip, zap, zop will make sense. <laughs> I promise you. And it'll be a lot of fun, too. I'm Ken Cooper, and this is Around River City. Thanks for listening in. Today, I'm having a great conversation with Chuck Charbonneau. Chuck is an actor. You've probably seen him on stage before. He's a, an improv teacher and a, a great improviser himself. And he's also a software code writing consultant for companies all around the world. It seemed a little odd to me that those two passions could live inside one brain, the uh, artistic creative side, the theater side, and then the technological side. That's why we sat down and had our conversation to get to the bottom of that. And there is a lot of conversation to come. So stick around and uh, enjoy my conversation with Chuck Charbonneau on Around River City. Back on Around River City, I'm Ken Cooper. By the way, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can do that for free. And then you'll get an alert every time we have a new episode up. So just go to aroundrivercity.com. You can either look for my lovely picture or you can just look for the Around River City podcast. That's the way I would go personally. And look for the subscribe button. But right now, let's get to know Chuck Charbonneau. Yeah, so uh, my name is Chuck Charbonneau. I am uh, a mild-mannered software developer and um, consultant by day and a theater lover and performer and artistic director and improviser by every other waking moment of my life. <laughs> that seems like a great place to start yeah. because uh, we've known each other for a while. We've, we've improv together. Mm -hmm. And what you do by day seems to be so far on the other end of the spectrum of what we think of as left brain, right brain. It, and it, it, is it is. It is, but it also has guided my career significantly. And so, you know, I started off, I studied computer science at Michigan Tech University. And um, immediately after leaving Michigan Tech, got a job writing code in the automotive industry. Because I'm originally from Detroit and grew up there and got my first job. In that, that sounds huge. In the writing industry. code for the automotive industry. Yeah, I was uh, my first job was writing mic microcontroller code for uh, automotive engine controllers, and then I moved to a small data company that did high speed data acquisition. So imagine like you're you are so Ford when Ford puts together cars, they don't actually make all the parts, right? They right. they have right. they have automotive suppliers. Um, you're an automotive supplier, and you're building a, a seat. And you want to know how well that seat withstands struggle, right? So you shake the living shit out of it, and you put these little in, these little accelerometers on it, and then you those create waveforms, and you collect that data, and then you need to visualize it to see if the structures are keeping together. I was a part of a, t a company that wrote code that took that raw data, brought it into the then brand new Windows ninety five dated myself yeah, yeah. and um, <laughs> and visualized it so that they could see that that 
scientists and engineers could see um, the structural integrities of the things that they did. But we did a bunch of different stuff. We did audio work, et cetera. Um, and all I'm thinking of it, are you the reason my check engine light comes on? No, no, oh, I had okay. nothing okay. to do with that. <laughs> uh, actually, I worked, so one of the guys in our office actually was one of the primary developers of the second OMDB protocol. So he worked with the, with the automotive supplier groups that consorted on the creation of that protocol because we did some of that data acquisition. So we had nothing to do with that. If your check engine goes light on, light goes on, it's because the... Um, Whoever created the engine created something, created a problem, not okay. us. Okay. Um, I didn't want to have to blame you <laughs> yeah, for all of that. I mean, I got broad <laughs> shoulders, so whatever needs to happen. But at the same time that I was studying computer science at Michigan Tech, I got involved, like in February of my freshman year, a friend of mine had stumbled on this improv, this theater improv group on campus, and he said, You know, man, I think you would really like this. And I had never really done theater before. I wasn't not in high school. I wasn't a high school theater kid. I wasn't a musical theater buff. Like none of that stuff really hit me. You know, I was a late bloomer, and um, I. He said you should come, and it turns out that it was actually you could sign up for the class, but the woman who ran it, Sue Stevens, never threw us out, and so <laughs> we. She and I started going every day, and they were actually in the midst of rehearsing for a show that was half scripted work and the second half was all short form improv because she had worked with Paul Sills and the paper bag players. So I learned improv from like a second generation Viola Spolin junkie. And so and theater, scripted theater and improv came to you at the same time? Pretty much because in the spring of that year everybody in the ensemble went and auditioned for the spring show which was directed by an artist in resident whose name is Tim Hardy, who was actually a member of the Royal Shakespearean Acting Company, and he was a he was a um, he was a compatriot of of uh, Patrick Stewart, and so he had some fantastic stories. But a bunch of us got roles, and it like I literally my first real theater experience was being directed by a globally professional the uh, director and so like I'm like oh oh this is what theater is like this is pretty fantastic yeah and so so it uh, was pretty instant for you that yeah love at first sight the light went on yeah when I left Michigan Tech um, within a year I went back to school at Oakland University in um, Auburn Hills Michigan to study theater with a minor in Japanese. And so... Wow, that's quite a left turn. Well, I was working... So I had always had a passion for the language. I'd studied a little bit at tech. Um, I studied... I had studied about nine years of French and um, started studying Japanese when I was up there. I totally loved the language and the culture. And I was working in the automotive industry at the time, so it was relevant to what I was okay. doing. Um, and so I went back to school and um, found out that it's really hard to do to study theater and have a full-time um, computer job at the same time um, because all the all the acting classes are during the day. I could go study Japanese at night. They had a bunch of night classes that I could do, but I couldn't do the theater stuff. So I went and had a heart-to-heart -heart with my boss, and I'm like, you know, I'd really, really like to do this. And so we worked it out. And this, I think... I was like one of the first kind of 
you can write code at home sometimes, kind of work from home structures. So really, we really worked it out. As long as my job didn't suffer, we didn't have any problems. And so even after I left Michigan Tech, I kept going back up there. Um, every summer I was teaching at the summer youth programs there. I was teaching a theater or um, a theater class. So it was three one-week classes for kids. They had 40 hours of, of time with me. I'm sorry for them that they had to do that. Um, and I was using the improv techniques that I was learning and the theater things that I was learning, and I was kind of feeding that back into the pipeline. Um, cut to now, that program is a three-week-long, three multifaceted program at their new art center up there where kids can go up there for three, for three solid weeks and put up a show. And if you're an actor or if you are cool. a technician and a kid who's interested in those things, there's a three-week program up there now so i feel like are you ever involved in that i have not i have not been and uh, but i i got their i'm a part of the alumni so i got got their flyer um and i saw that it was a three-week program like a tear to my eye because it was yeah. you know i was there at, their, at that infancy so um i i i swapped to a tier one automotive um supplier full-time business software developer at that time, I met a guy who was consulting to that to Lear, the Lear's the automotive supplier, and he told me about the company he worked for, their consulting company, and I'm like, I, that is exactly what I want to do, right? And it's not doing really anything different than I'm doing now, except not being not struggling against the organization, but the organization is there to be consultants, and that's really when my those skills those things i had been doing started to blend started to join because i had to be able to have these conversations technical conversations um cultural conversations with our clients as a technician as an engineer and so since then i have stopped really writing code and i'm actually a coach my role is i go to large corporations and help those corporations transform the way their developer core does business, the way that they write code, the way that they organize, the way they work with the business. And so it, it literally is all of these skills that I picked up, being able to listen, being able to hear hear what what people are saying amidst the words that they're using and bring them in to f help them form ideas and bring them to new ideas so that they can change the way they do business. So understanding how teams form um, groups function, people listen, uh, how to generate ideas uh, from a group of people who may or may not be excited about doing those things, right? Um, I run workshops, and so um, I've used improv games or, or variants of them in these work technical workshops to get people to think about their next software product, their next, their, the current business process problems they're having. This is Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper talking today with Chuck Charbonneau. I've got a really good picture of the technical side of Chuck's brain. And what I really wanted to explore is how that lives and how that has influenced his creative side or how the creative side has influenced the technical side of his life and the work that he does. We'll get into that when we come back on Around River City. Thank you. 
This is Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper. I want to remind you that you can check out AroundRiverCity.com, not just for the podcast, but for all kinds of cool things that are going on around the area. Lots of events that are going on around the area. Job opportunities available around the area as well. So check it out, AroundRiverCity.com. Today I'm having a great conversation with Chuck Charbonneau, trying to pull together the two sides of his brain. One very technical, he writes code, he's a software developer and a consultant, and the other side devoted to theater, uh, improvisation, Shakespeare especially, which we'll get into a little bit later on. And Chuck, what I really want to know is how you started to bring those two sides of you together. The whole time I was I was working at the Tier 1, I was doing theater. I was at the university, I was doing Shakespeare and Brian Friel, and I was doing Chekhov, and I was also started an improv group at the university because I couldn't stop doing that. I um, started doing improv all over Detroit, and so I had the opportunity to produce and direct a show that ended up on the uh, Detroit Second City stage. I got to do uh, improv all over, and at that same time, I started uh, commuting to Chicago, to, and this is before I took a consulting job, uh, to take um, the Improv Olympic classes, which is where Farley learned. And yeah, I was going to say, that's big time for improv. So, right? I, yeah, I was there, and I, you know, I, was, uh, I, I was blown away. And so we were doing improv in Detroit. We, learned, we had learned stuff from a guy who'd just been, from, been doing it in Chicago, and so he took us out there pretty much sight unseen to perform in a midnight cage match at IO and we lost by one vote which is like one of the smallest losses to that ha- that had happened to that date and while there I witnessed like I had seen I stayed there everyone else went out to figure out kind of what they're going to do for the night we're going to go to the bar we're going to go see this thing I want to go see Wrigley Field because it's just two it's literally two doors away I'm like I'm going to park my ass in a chair and watch improv because that's why we're here and I'm like, the show was good. That show was great. No, we're doing that. Like, there's nothing here at Improv Olympic that we're not doing, right? So I feel comfortable with what's happening. And then the headline show went up, and their name is Baby Wants Candy. Baby Wants Candy does a 90-minute fully improvised musical from a single suggestion from the audience. I, to this day, and this was in 99, 2000, I remember the suggestion for that night and what the opening number looked like. I, my mind was blown. Uh, I in, enrolled myself in their level one class that night, and in the next semester, I started taking level one classes. So I was driving back and forth from Detroit to Chicago every weekend to take classes at I.O. What was the suggestion? Belly Button Rice Cakes was the name of the musical that they did. Okay, I think we're kind of getting a little ahead. Let's let's do a little <laughs> primer on, on what is improv. Sure. So... Improvisational theater is the concept that the work that we do as creators can be art presented to an audience. So if you think about um, the way that Second City writes sketches, that the way that Saturday Night Live writes what they write, you have a bunch of writers who write things down and then you have a bunch of actors who take that content and give it life. They build things into it. But a lot of that building comes out of the improvisational process. And so improv is a set of concepts that you use to build scenic and relationship on stage. There's two schools of thought. Um, It came out of the Compass Players. One went to the, we think improv is the process by which we create the things we present to you, and those things are scenes that we write down. And the other process was, 
bullshit. We think that process itself is beautiful and therefore can be witnessed and is interesting in that moment. And that is the kind of long form improvisational theater that you see at the Improv Olympic and the Annoyance and somewhat what you see at UCB, etc. Meanwhile, this all came out of some work that was being done by Viola Spolin and her son um, around the Spolin games and the creation of theater games for the creation of character and scenic awareness. Um, if you go to most theater, pro um, most theater programs, you will be witness to some of these games as the way to find character. Right? I'm going to do this character. How does that person walk? How does that person talk? What is that character's wants and needs? You know, does that person have any animal characteristics that you can play through? Like These are games that we play in improv. There are also tools that you can use as an actor to find something interesting about what you're trying to present. It, it seems like improv is just... I, the way people want to describe it is well, you just stand up and make stuff up. But there is really so much... Yes. Uh, I don't want to say structure, but there's almost an implied structure. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, you absolutely can get on stage and just make stuff up. But the problem is, is that you're usually doing it with other people. And this concept in improv, the concept of improv is yes and. And not that I'm going to say yes to everything that you say, but... Yes, we are both in this space to co-create. Yes, what you have to say is interesting and thoughtful and creative. And yes, we will work together to create something. And so like when I teach improv, I teach from the, from the ground up um, the concepts of you and I. You and I are on stage together. You and I are going to work together. You and I are going to determine who we are by giving each other gifts. I'm going to endow you with things. You're going to endow me with things. I'm going to make choices about how I feel about you, about our moment, etc. Um, the rest of it, once you figure out the who, the rest of it, the, the what that's important to you, the where that you are, um, those things become secondary and complementary to the moment. You know, there's a, there's a million moments that happen between these two characters that are happening on stage right now. Why is this one interesting? And asking that question. You know, playwrights are asking that same question, and they're writing it all down. We as actors and improvisers can ask those same questions, and instead of writing it down, present it together. And there are both long form and short form and those are the two different styles of improv one looks at game structures the other looks at scene structures um, that create those structures to make that creation of the who what and where easier to give you it, it's like bumper bowling right if you just stay within those structures you're not going to throw a gutter ball but eventually you want to pull those bumpers off and understand how those structures work and sometimes you know take a little liberty and try to throw that hook to get that spare. Of course, yeah. I've always likened it to uh, skydiving. You, uh, that's the, the joy and the exhilaration of, of improv is curtain goes up or the lights go on or whatever, and you're standing there, and we must create. And, you know, when you jump out of an airplane, I don't know if you've ever done that, uh, you jump out of the airplane and, well, I, my chute better open. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and when you do it, you typically never jump by yourself the first time. Correct. You know, improv is very much the same way. You can start very simply in these very simple structures and forms until the way to say yes, the way to create, all that becomes second nature, muscle memory, 
then you can jump out of the plane, right? And there's a, the trust that is uh, probably the most important must in yes. improv, I think, is trust. Absolutely. Yeah, the building of ensemble is is really the secondary only to um, the the individual in, um, creator's ability to um, s- commit to the moment of yes, right? And so, and yes actually builds the ensemble because the moment you say no, you break trust, right? And sometimes the word no, sometimes it's negation, sometimes it's ignoring, right? Always accept. And I don't have to like it, and I don't necessarily have to do the thing that you're saying that you want to do, but I can at least listen and accept. And by allowing all those ideas to exist, you're building that that trust. And yeah, so I have, of all the games that I have kind of in my repertoire, most of them are around building trust. Everything else is just shaping the scene work so that people listen to each other better and make choices that are outside their comfort zone sometimes so that they begin to find their creative voice. What's the best improv you've ever been a part of? Or do you have that? Best improv that I've... Or the, maybe the most proud moment or you're... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The most proud moment I ever had was when uh, my... So I did a two-man show with uh, my buddy Cliff Highfield. We did a two-man show called Men in Shirts, and we, we traveled that show around the United States for probably eight or nine years um, to, to festivals and whatnot. And one show that we did at the Phoenix Improv Festival, we made, pe- we made someone cry emotionally, not because we like made fun of them or anything, but we made a commitment on stage. So, our, so first of all, our improv, our goal is never to be funny. Our goal is always to be honest. Humor comes in the moment of breaking of tension. And so you can build tension in so many ways. And so sometimes I would rather have I would rather have applause and emotion than laughter. Laughter is easy, but making an audience member commit to our moment so, such that when I, Cliff was playing this puppy in a cage and I literally let him die on stage. Um, wow, that's bold. It well, I think it, 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 it is because everything else that we everything else that was happening was funny, and so this moment was a foil. This moment was, hey, kids, <clears throat> the world isn't all laughter, and so we were allowing this darkness to. Well, to be clear, the name of our format that we created was called the Abyss. We went dark <laughs> and deep, and then brought it brought some of it back and let some of it hang yeah and uh yeah and so letting that audience be appalled that's what i want i I want honest emotional response you go and watch scripted theater on stage and you can have an emotional response why shouldn't you be able to have that in unscripted theater as well wow and it's so you're not proud that you made this person sad. You're proud that you reached them emotionally. Correct. Yeah. Like, yeah. Them crying wasn't what made me happy. Them having that honest emotion is what did. You know, and then the rest of it is like I started the improv festival here through uh, LCT and the Weber Center. We had five awesome years. Like, that's a huge proud moment for me of me taking something and giving it back to the community and letting the community drive it. Right. That. that that and it was kind of self-serving too because then I got to do awesome improv with awesome improvisers from around the country but but that was the the creative thing so 
This is Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper, and uh, in conversation today with Chuck Charbonneau. Now, I mentioned earlier that by the time you're done listening to this podcast, the words zip, zap, zop will make sense to you. (laughs) And they will, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, We're going to get into that in the next part of our conversation. And Chuck and I are also going to talk about uh, one of his latest projects. It's a group called Theater from the Ground, and they focus on Shakespeare and performing Shakespeare, but not in any way at all like you think Shakespeare would be performed. In a way, it's actually going back to the roots of Shakespearean performance. So stick around. There is more to come on Around River City. We're back on Around River City. Thanks for joining Chuck and me for the conversation. I'm Ken Cooper. And you can check out AroundRiverCity.com for all kinds of events going on in the area. Really good listing of uh, jobs that are available in the area. And, of course, you can always subscribe to this here podcast and make sure you always get an alert when we have a new one ready. Right now, though, let's get back to the conversation with Chuck. We'll talk about Shakespeare from the ground and a new way of performing Shakespeare that's really not new at all. And let's get right into making some sense out of zip, zap, zop. One of my favorite things when I was uh, doing improv was those games that you've talked about, those warm-up games. Yes. Zip, zap. Zip, zap, zop. Zip, zap, zop, things like that. Is there one that you can explain to us, explain to me right right here, and that maybe a listener with a couple of other friends can do just either for fun or, or, or to learn if they want to explore some trust with friends or family? So improv, improv games are very much a visual connected experiential thing, but I'll give it my damnedest. Um, yeah, so... Baseline, I usually use, so I layer. When I teach, I layer. I start with an idea that I want to get to, and I start layering exercises on top of them. And so the first thing you do as an improv group is you warm up. And most of that that warm-up is getting used to your body, getting used to your voice, and getting used to other people in the space, focusing. And so games like Zip, Zap, Zop are very, like, they're like chess, right? Like, they're really simple. The rules are... Everybody stands in a circle. You make eye contact. You make a clapping motion with your hands such that you clap across your hand and point. When you point, you point at someone else in the circle. You make eye contact and you say zip. The person who you pointed at receives it. They repeat by clapping and pointing. They say zap and so on to zap. And then you start over, zip, zap, zop. It sounds really simple. So whenever you add a human being to any process, chaos ensues. Um, and so I've learned this as a software engineer, and my job has been to help, that, help lessen that chaos through automation and through cultural change. Uh, so whenever you add a human to that, they'll fuck it up. They'll judge, who should I point to? Oh, I don't know that person, or this person is new to me, or I've already pointed to that person. And so they'll stumble, they'll get it wrong. Um, Or they'll judge themselves and say, oh, damn, I said zap and not zop, right? And so the coaching of it is letting people let that go, 
Respond to what you hear. Don't judge what you say. Just work through zip, zap, zop. I mean, that's the game. It, it is, and it's, it is interesting because as simple a game as it seems on the surface, it, is, it, it totally teaches you to be in the moment, to not judge yourself, not judge somebody else, to pay attention to them, to make eye contact. And if you do fuck something up, just let's go. Just, just go, go through, through it. Let it go. Just go through right? it. Right? Like, if you go to a bazaar in a foreign world and you're, a foreign country and you're looking at crafts, if you find a rug with a screw-up in the weave, that's the one you want because that's the one that has character. That's the one that's going to be worth more money later. And so embracing them, remembering them for later, if you let them go now, um, you'll be willing to let them go in terms of judging your work in a scene, your screw-ups, and remembering them as interesting that you can pull them back. Because so, those are the funny moments when you respond to something that's happened before or a screw-up that we all recognize happened, and then you look at the audience and tell them, yes, we saw that too. Yeah. I can relate to that. One uh, experience I had, we were doing some improv up at uh, Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And my scene partner, we were, I, I think we had established that we were somewhere in Minneapolis at the time doing the scene, and we had to get into a car. And she said, I'll drive, but she got in on the wrong side. She got in on the right side. Yeah. And so suddenly, we're in London, <laughs> just like that. Yeah. And we both kind of chuckled about it. I guess we broke character a little bit, and the audience just thought it was the greatest thing. And that, I don't even want to call it a mistake, because it wasn't. It was just a... a Mm-hmm. An uh, unplanned change of direction. <laughs> the the acceptance of the uncomfortable is what it was. It was everybody recognized it, and you didn't let that derail what was next, right? It was oh, we've suddenly made a choice. We've we've made a creative choice, and we can say yes to it, or we could fight against it. Why fight? Right? There's other things. What you can good start would with. it have been? Would it have done for me to say, "Honey, you're in the you're if you're going to drive, why are right. you in the?" That's not the moment. That's right. That's not why you're here. Right, and that. So I will smoothly segue into this is why I love the the Shakespeare that I'm doing right now. Yes, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, because you know I, I, I'm doing theater at LCT for a long time. I've wanted to do Shakespeare, love Shakespeare. Um, I had an opportunity to see a group in Chicago called the Backroom Shakespeare Company. And uh, Samuel, uh, Samuel Taylor uh, is the genius who created it with his friends. Uh, he wrote a little book called um, My Life with a Shakespeare Cult. And he wrote another book called Love, uh, Love Letters to the Shakespeare Cult. Um, and the way they approach it is the way that Shakespeare wrote. He wrote for the groundlings. He wrote for people in a bar. <laughs> I am so used to doing improv for people in a bar. Um, if, you th- if you're listening to Shakespeare and you think that kind of sounded like a dick joke, guess what? It was. He wasn't writing poetry for the queen. He was writing theater to keep the businesses, Burbage's Globe open, right? He was, that's what he was writing for. And the way he wrote, he would write sides. He would write all the lines for people, for the actors. He would hand them out. You'd, they would go and learn them. They would come together and have one rehearsal in which they work through their fight scenes, work through, they work through the sex and violence, they try to stitch it all together, and then they, excuse me, do a show. So you'd get your lines a couple weeks out, 
learn your lines, come together, rehearse once, do a show in front of a bunch of drunk people on the ground. Wow. Love it. Wow. Right? And so the con- That's not at all the way we think of Shakespeare. Correct. Right. People, most people's first experience with Shakespeare is an English class. Shakespeare wasn't meant to be studied. Shakespeare was meant to be spoken. And so this blends that joy of theatrical work, of learning lines, having moments, scenes that we don't need to worry about what to say, but more what to do. And the improv of being in the audience, of not accepting, only accepting the fourth wall when it's beneficial. Um, and accepting the audience. Like it, I, I, I guarantee that if Shakespeare was allowed to have blackouts, he would have, but he didn't. It was daylight. They didn't have you know, lights. They had the sun, and they had footlights, with, which were candles. And so um, when actors are speaking exposition, they're not speaking it to each other. They're speaking it to the crowd. Um, when they're making jokes, they're making it for the moment of making the riffraff, the, the groundlings, the halfpenny penny seats engaged. Um, and so the, this Shakespeare that we're doing, we, do, I, we, we pick a show, we sign people up, we don't do auditions. We, we say, if you want to be in the show, tell me what roles you want and why. I cast on passion. I don't cast on type. Come and tell me why you want to be in this show. Here, okay, I've got enough people to do a cast who are passionate. Here's the script that we're going to use. Here's the date that we're going to do it. And we will meet. You are empowered and encouraged to make this the best show you can. There is no director. Um, if we, We're doing Midsummer right now. So, hey, Rude Mechanicals, you should meet once or twice between now and then to figure out what your scene's like. Lovers, why don't we work with our intimacy choreographer so that you can work through any of those fiddly bits that you want to make sure present themselves on stage well. Um, fairies, why don't you guys connect so that your poetry comes out in the way you speak? I will have weekly check-ins where you can deal with any problems, but the actors own the show. You show up, we do one rehearsal the week before, we do one show in front of a crowd in a bar. This first one's going to be in a beer garden out at Ecker's Apple, uh, Apple Farm. But it's in a bar to the groundlings. And it's not on stage. It's in the people. And so it's that mild cross-section between classical theater and improv. And I love it. I, I think Shakespeare would, would, be, would recognize that. Yeah, I, I hope he would cheer, right? So, um, but because that, that's, that's the way he wrote. He wasn't a director. He was an actor and a playwright. There was no such... Classical theater didn't have directors until much later. Um, you know, it wasn't until the advent of, of lights that could be shut off and higher-powered f- footlights and um, big theaters being built from a patronage perspective that you started to see the fourth wall created. But we don't do that in improv. Even when the lights go out, we... we ask the audience to be to be participatory as a matter of fact we can't start until the audience participates um and the same is with in 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 the the background style of doing shakespeare we want the audience to respond we need them to because we are acknowledging their presence so what is the name of your uh your group that you've put together yeah so uh we created a, a nonprofit called theater from the ground and um which is kind of a bunch of different kind of segues of that of that language together. So we're doing it on the ground. We don't go on stage. We're playing for the groundlings, and we're really trying to build, 
create a building block of classical theater in the region. So um, we're focused on regional performance and regional education. So uh, we're putting, we have we have a structure for educating um, students um, from middle school to high school. Um, we haven't really reached out to anybody yet because most schools are still reeling from from COVID. Um, we had one performance in January of 2020, and um, we, we were spinning up, and that was at uh, Pearl Street Brewery. We were spinning up for our second performance. We were about a week out from performing Julius Caesar on March uh, for the Ides of March on pretty much the Ides of March, and COVID shut down the United States. And so um, we haven't done anything since, and so we're spinning that back up but in between when caesar got canceled and now we started the nonprofit, we put together a business plan we've got a board of directors um, we have all of that put together so it's really we're kind of pushing forward with, with that well and before i let you out of here how can i get more information about a what you do and b this particular show at eckers yeah so um theaterfromtheground.org is the best way. We are on Facebook. We are on um, Instagram as Shakespeare from the ground and on Twitter as Shakespeare from the ground as well, because we do most of our, most of our um, Insta and Twitter is around our, sh our show ma uh, marketing. And so it's primarily Shakespeare. All right. Well, with your combination of Shakespearean uh, theater and improv and writing code, any words of wisdom for us uh, to leave us with? In the end, you know, I, I joke about my job. My job as a software engineer and consultant is about 80% marriage counseling. Um, when I work with large companies who are trying to change, it's all about the culture. And so cultural, cultural change, culture eats change for breakfast. And the same is true about putting together teams for anything. So if you're putting together an improv team, you're putting together a theater team, or just a, a group of people who have a common cause. And so, um, when I come in and I consult, I think about the culture and the change I'm trying to create and the culture I'm trying to create, and I work towards that. It doesn't matter if it's technical or not. And you know, that's what I have learned trying to do these things. And if, if, if people take anything from this, it's first come see Shakespeare because Shakespeare is, uh, is joyous for me, but also think about the culture that you're trying to create and try to drive towards it. Well, that's going to wrap up this conversation on Around River City. I uh, want to say thanks to Chuck Charbonneau for spending some time and uh, giving us some great insight. I urge you to play the Zip Zap Zap game just for fun with friends. <laughs> it's harder than it seems, but it's also a lot more fun than you might think. And if you want some more information on the Shakespeare from the Ground performance that's coming up or anything else that they've got going on, I've got a link for you right here on the podcast page of Around River City. I'm Ken Cooper. Thanks for being a part of the conversation.